about that? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Thank you for the pretty flowers, whoever drew those. <clears throat> so our text today is in Romans chapter 10. Verses 9 through 10. Paul tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. I'll read that again. That's so tight. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Easy, right? All you got to do is believe. But what do you do when believing is hard? What do you do when you have a difficult time believing what it is that you're supposed to believe? Even if you want to believe it, you're having a hard time. This text reminded me of a story back in John's Gospel. Chapter 6, we read that uh, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him there, because they had seen the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Passover was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? Now he asked this only to test him because he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus was crafty like that. Philip answered him, eight months wages wouldn't buy enough bread for everyone to have even a bite. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Hey, there's this little kid over here with five small barley loaves and two small fish. (laughs) But how far are they going to go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Fortunately, there was plenty of grass in the place. The men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. But Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus hadn't yet joined them. 
A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they rode three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching a boat, walking on the water. They were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. And then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went off to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Well, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Let's be honest here. You're not looking for me because you saw miraculous signs. You're looking for me because I fed you lunch. Seriously. But don't work for food that spoils. Work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. And they asked Him, well, what do we have to do to do these works of God? Jesus answered, write this down. This is going to be really long and complicated. The work of God is this. Believe in the one he sent. That's it. The work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. This is not what they were expecting to hear. They asked him, what, well, what miraculous sign are you going to give us so that we may see that and then believe you? I mean, what are you going to do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. I.e., maybe you could hook us up again. And, and by, the, just by the way, I, I have to say, you will sometimes hear foolish Foolish people say that what Jesus did was he got everybody to share. The little boy brought his lunch out, and then everybody else brought their lunch out, and they shared it all around, and it turns out there was so much that there was extra left over. That's stupid. That is not remotely at all what the authors of the gospel are trying to convey. This is a miraculous provision for the people from God. End of excursus. Jesus said, look, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Oh, all right, sir, then from now on, then give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and still you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will 
of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this, some of the Jewish leaders began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, Joey the carpenter's son? I mean, we know his family. How can he say, I have come down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one's seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, but then they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then these Jewish leaders began to argue sharply among themselves, how? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And now here's the kicker. He said all this while he was teaching where? In the synagogue at Capernaum. which is still there, by the way. You can see the foundations of the synagogue that Jesus taught in, in Capernaum today. They built another one on top of it. That was kind of their thing. Build something on top of the old one. But you can see some of the foundations of that synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus said these things. Now, what would have been going on there in the synagogue at Capernaum when people would teach things? What would they have been teaching? Torah. Yeah, this is, the, this is where Torah was brought out and was taught, was expounded. You might expect someone says, well, what are the works of God? Well, 613 commands of Torah. Know them inside them out and do them. But Jesus says, what? Here's the work that God requires. Believe in the one that he has sent. This is not what they were expecting to hear, but this was the message that Jesus had for them. And frankly, he had every good reason to expect that they ought to pay attention. He had, of course, just fed him, and then he did the whole walking on water thing. And the reason that John is telling us a story about people sort of wondering where he was and figuring out how many boats had left is that they understood that he had gotten from point A to point B in a way that people don't normally manage to get from point A to point B. 
So he had performed these miraculous acts. It's kind of funny. They're like, well, what miraculous sign are you going to give us? Like what, other than walking on water and feeding you all with five loaves and two fish? So he says to them, this is the work. This is it. This is all. Believe in the one whom he has sent. And we usually think about faith or belief in opposition to works, right? This is especially sort of a Protestant thing, right? We, we know James says faith without works is dead, but then, of course, Paul tells us in Ephesians that you're justified by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. But what if faith is difficult? What if belief is something that seems to require some sort of effort on our part. Maybe this is another way of thinking about it that could be helpful. And uh, right here I'm going to echo what we did uh, at the beginning of our series on the Nicene Creed um, back in uh, 2009. Talked about how we often think of belief in opposition to doubt. Right? I think we should believe and not doubt. Anybody ever been told that? Actually, it's in the Bible. If you ask, you should believe and not doubt. James says that. But the reality is that we do have doubts, don't we? Right? There are things that occur to us that make us, make us doubt, make it hard for us to believe. And I think rather than looking at doubt and belief as in opposition to one another, it can be fruitful to look at them as being in tension with one another. There's a sense in which we kind of need both. I mean, think about what, what's belief without any doubt? What, what do you have if somebody believes and has absolutely no doubt, doubt at all? Blind faith, blind obedience usually a jerk, right? I, I, I think the way I look at that, uh, arrogance probably describes that kind of attitude. It's kind of the dark side of belief. If you just have belief and it's not tempered by doubt, you get arrogance. You may. Well, I think it kind of applies to both. Um, but uh, specifically, I'm interested in talking about belief in Christ because this is like church and not physics class. Right. I think it works about. Yeah, um, stick with me and let's let let. Okay, no, 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 no it's good. Well, let let's see if we can answer the question as we go. But yeah, I I think it it can produce it can produce arrogance, right? And there is a dark side of doubt too. What about somebody who doubts everything and doesn't believe anything? What do you get there? You can get cynicism. You get agnosticism. Or you're just not sure of anything, so you try not to believe anything. This gets to be fairly difficult if you get, like, to a stoplight. You're not sure, really sure, that that light is green. The person behind you is sure the light's green. Uh, 
but but you get this you, you get cynicism, you get agnosticism, you, you can get kind of a, a despair, you can get a uh, an anything goes kind of attitude. And, and I think what what these can all lead to, whether it's refusing to believe anything or insisting that you have all of the answers, I think what these can uh, what these can very easily lead to is basically falsehood. Because, yes, there are some things that we can be confident about, like gravity. I mean, of course, you get into higher physics and you find out it's more complicated than that, but it's been my experience that if you trip and fall, you hit the ground. <laughs> can bear witness. I'll testify. And, and not only, I mean, so, so if you're participating in this, then really you're, you have to be dishonest, don't you? If you insist that you absolutely have all of the answers and that there is absolutely nothing that can shake anything you believe, I mean, I guess if you really convince yourself of that, then you just turn into a psychopath. But if you have any sense of awareness, then you're, you're basically having to, by sheer force of will, try to pretend that what is true is not true and vice versa. But what a healthy doubt can lead to, you'll notice that when I did the evil, I did black, partly because gold doesn't show up well, but what good things, now we're in purple, a healthy doubt can lead to humility, because you know, yeah, I don't have all the answers. There's always more that I have to learn. I can let that doubt fester. I can let it make me cynical and bitter. Or I can say, you know what, this doubt tells me that I have something to learn, that I need maybe other people. And a healthy belief can lead to confidence. But it's a confidence that's tempered by humility. And it's a humility that's energized by confidence. We can have some confidence in the things we believe, but also be humble to know that we don't have everything, right? And our humility doesn't lead us to say there aren't any answers. No, we, we, we can have some confidence in the things we believe. And I think what these both can lead to is peace. A profound peace, so that our confidence gives us not an arrogant attitude, but it gives us peace, that we can believe the things we believe, and it gives our humility not this face down in the dust kind of nothing else can be real attitude, but we can be at peace with the idea that we don't know everything. Does that help to answer your question? Because now I'm going to talk about where it cashes out Christ. All right. So, when we are told this is the work that God requires, that we believe in the one he has sent, 
we can have that belief, we can exercise that faith, understanding this bigger picture that we believe, but also know that it's not always easy to believe. And once again, reminded of a story about Jesus. Yes, good. This is back in Mark, chapter 9. So, uh, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of Torah were arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. The man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out this spirit, but they couldn't. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long am I going to have to put up with you morons? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything? What do you mean, if you can? Everything's possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I believe, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. be hard to believe, but God, as much as he will say, what do you mean, if you can, he will respond to that prayer, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And he does that for us just through his spirit. He does that for us alone, but, but he doesn't make us just do this alone. He has given us a community of his followers in whom we can work out what it means to say, I believe, help my unbelief. He he gave this to the Christians from the very earliest days. When Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is citing there the most ancient Christian confession of faith. The very, very, very most basic articulation of our faith is Jesus is Lord. We have sprinkled throughout the New Testament and other places. We have things like the beginning of of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, "I, I passed on to you what I received as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he descended to the dead, that he was raised again in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to many people. There, there's, there are these basic nuggets of testimony, you, you, sort of the, these portions of, 
of the New Testament that seem to have this sort of poetic quality. Probably what's happening there is Paul is quoting from these hymns that people would have sung or quoting from these snatches of, of uh, confessions that people would have known. So God gives us these. He gave his people these from the very earliest days of the church. And, and we have them also in things like the creeds. This is one of the reasons that we say the creeds and we try to learn them and we, we say them when we take communion and we say the Apostles' Creed when we perform baptisms. These are statements of our faith that help to ground us and help to align things that we believe. These are important. These are worthwhile. We have hymns. You may have noticed that sometimes you can't get a song out of your head. That's not always pleasant, especially like if it's by Barry Manilow. Uh, but you also may have noticed that sometimes you'll get hymns stuck in your head, and these words kind of burrow down deep in you. This can happen when you memorize Scripture. This is also one of the blessings of the prayer book, is you have some of these prayers that are so beautifully written, and they can get down deep within us. And so when we are finding a difficult situation, and we don't even know what to pray for, we can say, well, Lord, fulfill now our desires and petitions as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth and in the age to come, life everlasting. And God gives us this great heritage in our faith. But it's not only just dead tradition, it's also a living fellowship. He's given us each other to encourage us so that when we are experiencing difficulty believing, we have others who can help us in our unbelief, whether it's because they are experiencing the same thing and they can walk through that with you, or it's because they can testify to the things that God has done in their life. So that unlike the Canadian lemmings on the cover of your bulletin, we can encourage one another and spur one another on, Paul says, to love and good works. So when we do these fun food and fellowship things. It's not just so that we can, you know, stay late and make a mess of the kitchen. This is a way for us to be building relationships. And we do this. This is one of the reasons house church is so important and, and is integral to the life of our church. We are in each other's lives. We are doing life together. We are in community because that's how God has set us up. That's how he has given us this life that we walk together. And so we can say to God, I believe, help my unbelief. And God answers that with a brother or sister who comes alongside. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that sometimes we find it too easy to believe and we can slip into arrogance. We also confess the times we have too much difficulty believing and we can doubt where we shouldn't. We pray that you would always be giving us the strength to believe, the courage to believe, and continue to enfold us in a community that enables us to believe together. All this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.